0: Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Practical Advice on Dharma Practice with a New Year's Wish by Lama Tom Broadwater. In this New Year's Day talk, Lama Tom takes a fresh look at how to practice. We will make extensive use of the 17th Jawan Karmapa's short talk at the end of his April 2022 Dharma teaching. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Tixam Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast.
1: So good morning, happy new year. Good to see you all here. We'll begin by first of all, sort of examining our own minds for just a moment. Why are we here? What's the point? And we all came for different reasons. But hopefully, one of the reasons we come here is to benefit our own minds with the intention that by our benefiting ourselves, we can benefit others. And what's always helpful when we come to any kind of Dharma talk or any kind of Dharma activity, is to examine where our minds are at at the moment. It's best to have a mind that's open, relaxed, concerned about others, loving, kind, And so let's set just for a moment and establish both our attitude and our intention. Just do this quietly. Maybe you didn't have too much of an intention coming here, but now's the time you can do that, just quietly establishing your intention. So what we next do is the Refuge Prayer. And you'll find it on this sheet. We'll say it in English three times. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and assembly Most Excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly Most Excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. So today I'm going to give a very short talk. I think it's going to be a short talk anyway. Um, I uh, did a dry run at home and it took me 20 minutes. (laughs) So I think that's probably what we'll do today. And at the end of the talk, if you have questions or comments or thoughts you want to Uh, raise you can, uh, but otherwise it'll be about 20 minutes. The talk I'm going to give um, is basically um, patterned after a talk given by uh, the 17th Karmapa uh, on April 22nd of this past year. I have to say past year now, don't I? Uh, uh, In uh, 2022, Uh, and he's in retreat uh, in Europe. And from his retreat, he gave this talk. And so much of what I will say today is is from his uh, his, uh, little talk. Um, So this talk will try to answer three questions. The first question is, how do we approach, how should we approach Dharma practice? The second question is, what does Dharma practice really mean? And the third question is, what are the best opportunities we have to practice in our daily life? So those are the three questions we're going to try to answer today. What we did today was really beautiful. We sat and we We did Chenrezig practice, and we imagined a world of peace, and we prayed for peace, and we lit candles, and so forth. All very beautiful. But we can fall into the habit of thinking that practice means reciting prayers, offering pujas, reciting mantras, circumambulating the stupa. We can start to think that practice is something we do only in the shrine room or at home in front of our shrines, in our shrine rooms at home. We can start to think that way and habitually think it that way. This is not to say that all those are not important and good. They are. but we can reify them to a great extent. And really we have to say that practice goes far deeper than simply words or ritual or tradition, far deeper. So we don't want to confuse practice with external appearances of practice. While we are saying prayers, our minds could have been anywhere else (laughs) but on what we were doing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that is something that happens to me when I am saying prayers or meditating, my mind goes elsewhere. But truly practicing Dharma is more profound than the distracted recitation of words. We sometimes think of Dharma practice as something like work. It's an effort, a meticulous effort that we have to put into things. Or we may sometimes think it's boring and we don't have very much interest in it. Some see practicing Dharma as very complicated and and a a difficult activity. For some who first come to Chenrezig, not understanding it, it looks very complicated and can be challenging. And in those circumstances, it can sometimes be difficult to be enthusiastic about what you find as difficult or confusing. Sometimes we think of practice as something like studying math. It's extremely demanding. So we have to work real hard, we have to think real hard we have to keep our focus real strong and you know on these complicated visualizations. These are all misconceptions that put people off, and it discourages real practice. Sometimes we say we want practice to practice Dharma. But we want the perfect circumstances under which to practice. We have to feel comfortable, it mustn't be too hot, it can't be too cold. So we have to have the perfect circumstances. On the other hand, we may think that before we begin to practice, we have to do a lot of other work. You know. Like before I sit down to, to meditate, you know, I gotta brush my teeth, I gotta make tea, I gotta, gotta clean the house, make my bed. I gotta, you know, I have to do all these things before I can actually sit down to practice. And only after I've done all these other things that I think were important to do, do I think now it's time to practice. So I'll do it in my free time. And of course, what happens? We never have time. <laughs> we never have time to practice Dharma. And I have heard that, and it's not just other people, myself. I've heard myself saying, well, I, I, you know, it's a little bit too busy today. I'm not feeling really good. The weather's, you know, you all have our excuses. I'm going to tell you a story that the 17th Karmapa told in his talk in April. And it's a story about a a fellow by the name of Atisha, who came to Tibet in the second uh, uh, revitalization of Dharma in Tibet. And Atisha had a particular student known as Najorpa Chimpo, which means great yogi. He was an ordained monk. And shortly before Atisha passed away, Najerpa went up to Atisha and said, for the rest of my life, Atisha, I'm going to dedicate all of my meditation uh, to your, uh, you know, in your name, your benefit. Now, generally, if someone tells a Lama that they're doing this kind of practice for the rest of their lives, they're gonna be happy. But that's not what Atisha said. He said, meditating is good, but can your meditating actually become Dharma? So, Najarpa sort of meditated on this and said, well, if meditation cannot become dharma, then perhaps I'll teach dharma. So he goes back to Atisha and says, Atisha, from now to the rest of my, for the rest of my life, I'm going to teach dharma. And Atisha again asks Najorpa, can your teaching dharma really become dharma? So this is sort of confusing to Najorpa. So he said, well, what do I do then? And this is what Atisha said, if you really want to practice Dharma, he said, first of all, I want you to follow Geshe Tampa. Geshe Tampa was actually a lay person and Nujurpa was a monk. So that's a little surprising in and of itself. But then he said, he gave him a second piece of advice. He said, Nujurpa, if you really want to practice Dharma, you have to give up on this life. It's rather surprising. He said, if you really want to practice dharma, you have to give up on the concerns you have for this life. And this is the crux of whether what we are doing is dharma practice or not. If we haven't given up on our concerns for this world, nothing we do will be dharma. We get, if, we're, if we're meditating and still have nothing before our minds but worldly concerns, it's not meaningless, but it lacks what we would call practicing Dharma. Dharma practice is when worldly concerns are given up. Our preoccupation with worldly concerns is an obstacle to genuine spiritual practice. Real Dharma practice is free from what we call the eight worldly concerns. And those eight worldly concerns, you've probably heard of them before. Hope for pleasure, fear of pain, hope for gain, fear of loss, hope for praise, fear of blame hope for a good reputation and a fear for a bad one think about it if we're doing dharma practice and only concerned about the hope for a pleasurable experience dharma practice is not always pleasurable so it's going to be an obstacle If we're thinking that somehow this Dharma practice is going to further our goals in life, you know, make us president of our company or something of this sort, that's gonna be an obstacle to the actual practice. There's a second story that the Karmapa told, and it's again about a monk. And this monk was actually circumambulating the monastery. And uh, a disciple of Atisha, whose name was Drontompa, uh, saw this fellow circumambulating. And Tompa went up to this fellow and he said, it's good you're circumambulating, but would it not be better if you actually practiced dharma? that seems like a very strange thing to say because many people do circumambulate uh, monasteries in the stupa here. So this monk said, well, if that's not good enough, then I'll go prostrate, do prostration, sort of like what we do in Nundro. You know, he's doing 100,000 prostrations. But Trontompa had the same question for the monk. He said, you know, that's good you're doing that, but wouldn't it be better if you actually did practice Dharma? So the next thing the monk said, well, then I'll do sacred texts, I'll read them and I'll be real practiced in in the text. And of course, Trungpa came up to him and said to him again, it's great that you're doing texts, but wouldn't it be better if you actually practice Dharma? By this point, obviously, the monk was pretty confused. He had done everything he considered to be dharma, yet Dranthampa said that they weren't dharma practice. So, of course, the monk asked him, well, what should I do? And Trompa replied, you need to put the concerns of this life out of your mind. And he said that three times. He said, put the concerns of this life out of your mind. Put the concerns for this life out of your mind. External forms are not Dharma practice. We sometimes get the mistaken notion that what's contained in the cup, the Dharma, we mistake what's the cup for the Dharma. We should be drinking the Dharma, not eating the cup. The cup is an external expression. So every time we're doing dharma practice we ought to recognize that because the real thing about dharma is whether it's not whether or not it's transforming our mind our mind's what's important here and the external expressions of dharma are there for one purpose and one purpose only and that's to transform our own mind. It's a mistake to judge people by whether or not they are engaged in a practice. <laughs> you know, I could be, I could be saying Chenrezig and my mind's 10,000 miles away. So our state of mind is the primary aspect to Dharma practice. What's our mind doing, doing these practices? And again, I don't want to say that any of these practices should not be done. Everyone can benefit by them. But, but the important thing is to look at how your mind's being transformed. And sometimes we think of Abdharma practice in terms of its inconvenience or its convenience. When our lives are going well, when we enjoy, enjoying life, we don't think we need to practice. But the reverse reverse is also true. When things are going badly, when you have a lot of physical or mental suffering, we don't want to practice Dharma. And instead we may seek out other solutions, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or what have you, and sort of sit in our own quiet desperation. We find it difficult to remember or find the energy to practice Dharma in these situations. So whether it's a good situation that we're in or in a bad situation, we always have a reason not to practice. There's another way we can use Dharma practice that's not, not going to be really helpful. Sometimes we find our ourselves up against the wall, you might say, uh, and as a last resort, sometimes um, we'll practice. The Karmapa calls that using Dharma like chicken soup. We think that not, no, that's not a bad thing to do, you know, when you're up against the wall, okay, yes, practice. But to think of it only in those terms is a mistake. To wait till, the other point that I would make about that is if you wait till you're up against the wall and you haven't practiced, let me tell you, it's unlikely you're going to start practicing. And if you do, You're going to see it more in terms of magic and expecting a magic result, a magic result that probably won't occur. Sometimes, you know, after we've been up against the wall, life actually gets better, all of its own. And now we may have a little time and a leisure to actually practice. And then we may say, now I, I am going to practice. But then you say, well, today I'm a little tired. I need a little rest. I've had a hard way of going. I'll start tomorrow <laughs> and postpone it. The Karmapa said in his talk, April of last year, he said, If you postpone postpone things until tomorrow, you will never accomplish anything. So what does practice really mean? First of all, we have to understand that Dharma practice is not a cure-all to make ourselves feel better. The the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas are not like, as the Karmapa said, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are not like first responders or paramedics giving treatment in a medical situation. Nor does practicing Dharma mean performing rituals and traditions nor is dharma practice to be considered a duty that we're obliged to do in many traditions there is this idea that we have to do something that's not dharma practice obligation is not part of it main point we need to know is that practice should be understood as something to be done all the time. When people come to me and they have, saying, well, I don't have time to practice. And I feel badly about that because I don't know how to reach that person immediately because the view, the correct view is there is all the time available to practice every day because Dharma practice is about improving your mind and there is always that opportunity to do that. Every day, there's never a day that goes by you could not improve your mind. One of the first steps to renew our practice is to recall the reasons why we took refuge in the first place. Each of us have our own reasons, of course, but I think we all share one reason. And that one reason is we see the Buddha, we see his example, and we want to follow it. We want to take Lord Shakyamuni Buddha as an example and have the intention that someday may I become someone like him who has realized true nature. I want to be like the Buddha, and there's no reason we can't because he started just like us. That should be our greatest hope. In order to accomplish this aim, we work on becoming a better person than we were before we took refuge, and then gradually become a good dharma practitioner, and then we become a good bodhisattva, and finally we become a buddha. The true dharma is the method by which we become someone who can better help ourselves and others. It's that simple. It's not complicated. This is why we study true Dharma and we put it into practice so the main point here is that everything depends upon our mind everything depends upon our mind we have to be in control of our minds we have to take ownership of our mind. It's the most wonderful gift we have, and we seem so far away from it. We have to take ownership of it. It's no use just going through the external appearances of Dharma practice. I won't say it's no benefit, but it's of little benefit. Every time we do a formal Dharma practice, it would be with the notion that this is going to help me transform my mind. Our practice shouldn't be rigid and it shouldn't be difficult. In other words, I always have to do this practice. This is my practice and this is what I'm going to do now until I die. That's a rigid way of thinking of practice. I'm open to the full possibilities that are offered here at this center. Meditation. Deity practice. Talks. All those things the full range of deity practice. We sometimes miss real opportunities for practice if we don't involve ourselves uh, in something like chin raising. It's a beautiful practice if we know how to do it. So we need to be flexible and open to change in our practice. Based upon our own maturity. If we are connected to our daily lives and are open to the world, Dharma brings benefits to us and to other people. We were talking about this at the break. Dharma. Practice can be like a treasure chest. That's just what the mapa says, like a tr- treasure chest that n- is never empty no matter how many times we take out the jewels that are in the chest. It is inexhaustible. So what's the best opportunities for practice? No matter who we are, life sometimes goes well and sometimes it goes badly. And sure enough, if something is going well today, tomorrow, it goes badly. Heck, I got up this morning, I, uh, things were going pretty well. Then, you know, Before long, things weren't going so well. Then they so it's like that. It's always changing, even within a single day. So as I was saying before, when things are going well, we might not see the need to practice. But from a true Dharma perspective, when things are going well, it's an excellent time to practice. If, if we have uh, wealth and we have connections and uh, we have all kinds of opportunities to be generous, And we can be generous with dharma. We can use our power, our wealth, and influence in our communities for helping people and creating benefit. That was also something we talked about at the break. But now, like us ordinary folks who don't have much wealth or power, (laughs) that's most of us, Even for us, if our lives are going well and we are happy, we shouldn't neglect Dharma practice. We can do all sorts of things, as simple as helping folks here in the center, welcoming folks, helping uh, with the shrine, doing cleanup, all kinds of things we can do that would be helpful to folks even if we don't have a lot of money and resources. So the question then is, how should we practice Dharma? That's the question for us today. The main point here is mindfulness. Keeping our focus on the central point of all practice, which is the transformation of our own minds, always keep that in mind when you're practicing. It's about transforming my mind. So mindfulness is important and awareness is important. Awareness is basically recognizing when we have become distracted, going back to that. So those two faculties of mind that we all possess, nobody's without them, and we have them in great resource. Being mindful and being aware are the two key issues in Dharma practice. And if we have those two, we never have to lose heart, and we can always maintain our purpose. So you might say this is sort of our mission purpose, our mission statement. And our mission statement as a Buddhist is, less engaged in worldly concerns, transforming our minds in light of the Buddha's example and words, using mindfulness and awareness in an unceasing manner all the time, every day. That's why we can practice every day, all day long, being mindful and aware that's our mission statement. We also can have a vision statement. Every, <laughs> almost every organization has both a mission statement and a vision statement, right? A, a mission statement is what we do. A vision statement is what inspires us to do it. So what's our vision statement? John Dem in The Great Path of Awakening, which is one of Lama kathy's favorite books and happens to be one of my favorite books also. In it, he provides us <clears throat> with inspiration for a Mahayana vision statement. And he begins and ends this book with the two bodhicittas. So let's explain what bodhicitta is. Bodhi means awakened. And citta means mind, so it's the mind of awakening. And there are two kinds of bodhicittas. The first is the relative bodhicitta, which is a compassionate intention to help all beings be free from suffering. And we start that by abandoning our personal territory, you might say, clearing the way for the full development of love and compassion for others. That seems to be a little problem with some of us, (laughs) our selfishness. So we have to work on that. And that's the relative side to bodhicitta. But if we work on it, we discover this mind and heart of love and compassion. So that's the first slide of it. Then there's ultimate bodhicitta, which is the direct understanding of the nature of reality, reality as it is. That could be a subject all in itself for a Dharma talk, but it's basically being able to see the empty, luminous nature of reality. But it's basically ultimate bodhicitta is understanding reality as it truly is. After we've drawn the curtain that represents all of our afflictive emotions and wrong ideas. When this compassionate desire to help others, is joined with a direct understanding of our uh, experience of reality, we become bodhisattvas. Those two aspects of bodhicitta join together, knowing what reality is and having a compassionate love for others. Joining those two together, we envision ourselves as bodhisattvas. And who are bodhisattvas? Awakening warriors. That's our vision. That's what we see ahead of us. That's what we see ahead of our practice. If we practice, we will become awakening warriors. That's a magnificent vision. And it's a vision for all of us. So the last instructions, the very last instructions that John Dem Contrell gives us in that book is, and I quote, throughout our lives, throughout our lives, may we train in the two bodhicittas using both meditation and post-meditation practices, including the practice of virtue, and acquire the confidence of proficiency. So we might be a little timid in the beginning practicing. We might not have a full understanding, as most of us don't, a full understanding of the nature of reality as it really is. We might not have the full range of skills to be compassionate and loving and helpful to other beings, but this is where the courage of a bodhisattva comes in. We're willing to take that journey. We're not afraid. And as we practice and practice fearlessly, we become proficient. That's our vision, to become proficient, skillful, compassionate warriors. So, to close out here and a Buddhist New Year's wish, and I'm going to paraphrase Tashi Namjel, who is a great meditator in, in Tibet. I'm going to paraphrase what he said. It's sort of poetic. I've been giving sort of practical advice as a sort of waxing poetic, and he said, May the radiant light of our affection for beings that cannot bear their suffering. May this light be unceasing. Within you is this radiant light. We talked about this this morning in Chen We have this radiant light. We call it our Buddha nature, call it what you want. And we have this capacity for affection for our fellow beings whom we know suffer. May that be unceasing. While at the same time, may we become aware of the true nature of reality, sort of like beginning to see the dreamlike nature of our experience. And when we combine these two, may we become awakened warriors. That's truly my hope for us. I want to become an awakening warrior and I want you to become awakened warriors. And so in this new year, you know, it's an arbitrary date, right Seth? (laughs) But we can, on this arbitrarily uh, uh, designated uh, new year day, begin again whatever was our practice in the past. It doesn't matter. As Kimball Carter Rinpoche says, and I repeat it so many times because it strikes me as so helpful. It's never too late to begin again. So let's just take a moment just to relax. You don't have to meditate. Just relax in the confidence of a new beginning. Let's dedicate the merit of our practice this morning, our practice of coming here to transform our minds. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas that I may follow in their path, I completely dedicate all this virtue. So if you have any comments, questions, or thoughts, um, we can do that now. Good morning. Good
2: morning. Thank you, Mama Tom, for your talk. When you mentioned the eight worldly concerns, are those basically a breakdown of um, our clinging?
1: I think that'd be a good way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. What do you think?
2: I think so. Cause like, you know, we cling to what we want, which would be the hopes, and then the aversions would be the fears. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But you would agree with that?
1: Yeah, you know, we can break our concerns, worldly concerns, down into those categories uh, in some way or another. Um, One of the things I would say that we all live under, the delusion. And the delusion is that somehow or another we can win this game of samsara. You know? We're, you know, we, we're, we're going to win. It's a losing game. Ultimately, we have to give it all up. If we've accumulated great wealth, we can't, as my grandmother used to say, my Irish grandmother, who was clutching her purse with $37,000 in her, she always kept it because she was a uh, a depression person. She didn't believe in banks, so she kept her money to herself. Um, And she, I can remember her sitting in her chair with her pocketbook with all that money in it. We didn't know it until after she died. Um, Her saying, Tommy, you know, you can't take it with you. (laughs) But she was trying. (laughs) Samsara's a losing game. We can't take it with us. We developed this nice reputation, it's gonna be gone. It might even be lost in this life. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. We get praised one day for something we did that was great and the next day we get kicked in the butt because somebody didn't like what we did. It's a game of gain and loss and in the end we have to give it all up. So these concerns are relative And dharma practice is not about that. It's about something that transcends these kind of concerns that we have. This is not to dismiss beings in samsara. In fact, if there is one thing we want to develop is a compassionate, passionate love and concerned for beings. That's for sure. So we're not dismissing other beings. We're just dismissing this game we play of gain and loss. It's sort of like that. Thank
2: you, thank you.
1: Good question, thank you.
2: And Yes, thanks again, Lama Tom. Um, First, a comment on what I was thinking as you began. uh, Pretty much everything is practice. Um, When I'm driving my car, I'm learning to cultivate patience and not being a jerk. When I go to work and seeing patients, learning to train, training in and practicing compassion, Buying uh, my kid a pair of shoes, uh, anything that we would consider mundane, it's still practice. The times on the cushion maybe help set some perspective and framework, but it's off the cushion as well. Um, question um, You know, uh, when do you talk about warriorship? Could you talk a little bit more about what that is from you know, We have in our culture uh, ideas of warriorship, which are not compassionate, not any, you know, we think of war. But, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, Choking Trump, Trungpa talks about the warriors of Shambhala, things like that. But could you talk a little bit more about what warriorship means from that? buddhist perspective
1: yeah so first of all tom what you say in regards to everyday activities can be transformed simply by our attitude is true um what john control tells us to do in the great path of awakening is choose that virtue you most lack to practice first. Um, And I don't know if you're, it sounds like we're on the same wavelength, uh, patience is mine. (laughs) And so working, I mean, there are, in a day's time, because I'm so impatient, there are innumerable opportunities for me to be patient. There is never very few moments in my life that I don't need to work on that. So it's a continual practice with me. I'm transforming this angry, impatient, person, mind, into something more workable, more pliant, more kind, more loving, more concerned about you and not just my uh, inconvenience. So that's really important. So you make a very important point is, we can you taking any particular non-virtue that we have or possess, turning that into virtue is the practice of a bodhisattva. Why are we called warriors? Um, because it's hard. <laughs> we have from beginningless time displayed impatience. So to put a stick in the spoke of that spinning wheel of impatience and stopping it takes a little courage. It also takes courage to be something that we think we can't be. Stepping out of that. And meditation helps us in that respect because when thoughts arise, angry or whatever, we drop them. So when we meet some situation that is difficult for us and we want to show impatience, using the techniques we've developed in, in meditation, we, we, we produce what you might call a little bit of a gap and then act. So really, there is no situation in our lives where we cannot show warriorship. I mean, we take this exalted idea of warriorship, like martial, you know, war thing. That's not what we're talking about, is it? It's a gentleness. A gentleness to ourselves and to other beings. And that takes courage. And that takes guts. (laughs) It's much easier just to continue along in whatever dysfunctional. Well, it, it causes us suffering and pain, but we are mindless of that. We're not aware of that. But once we do become aware of it, and see how much suffering we are inflicting on ourselves and others, we would want to envision ourselves as bodhisattvas. Thank you, Tom. Other thoughts, questions? Doesn't have to be profound. Be anything that's on your mind at this moment. If not, we can close out a little early. Again, I want to thank you for your kind attention. Uh, I'm really happy that you, we all could share this time together. It felt very special today for any number of reasons. I remember last year at this time, <laughs> sort of there was isolation, and this year feels different. It feels like maybe we're coming together. And Maybe it's going to be a good year. The one thing we can say about the future is, it's never like what we think it's going to be. <laughs> but we can we can make an aspiration that this year is going to be, for us at least, and we do control our own minds, it's going to be a different year. It's going to be a year where we Open ourselves up to love and to compassion. So, again, let's just sit for just a moment before we go out. Take a nice deep breath. Relax. You don't have to meditate. Just be in your body, relaxed, grateful. Grateful for the grace of being alive. Happy New Year, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karmateksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.